Super Talk Mississippi media production. Come see your locally owned and operated Linton Glass for all your glass needs. No matter what glass you need to replace, you can count on Linton Glass. Call us today at 601-835-4336 or find us on the web at lintonglass.com. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. It is a Tuesday in the merry old month of May. Little muggy. It's a little prematurely muggy, isn't it? <laughs> Not supposed to be this muggy this time of year, but well, it's just not usually this muggy while the temperature is still in the 70s. Like, once it climbs into the 80s and 90s, it's like, all right, we're, we're expecting mugginess. Very true. And I think that's because we got kind of a southerly flow pushing that moisture into the Magnolia State. That's why it's a little cloudy. We don't have one of those classic May high-pressure systems forming a dome over us. We had last week a couple of days, and it was gorgeous, Tuesday, Wednesday. Oh, yeah. I'm ready for some more of that. On the program today, in the next segment, Wendy Bailey, Executive Director of the Mississippi Department of Mental Health. And then at 11.05, it's Emmy Perkins, Miss Mississippi, coming in to talk about her services, Miss Mississippi, her future plans. She will crown the next Miss Mississippi in the upcoming pageant. But we are here, we're ready to go, and it is a big old day in the news, and that's because the President of the United States, Joe Biden, is scheduled to meet with congressional leaders this afternoon, Rhino, after the show, and they are going to talk about this old pesky debt ceiling situation One thing I found rather fascinating about this whole deal is that, for what it's worth, Republicans have at least produced a bill, some legislation, 316 pages of it, as a matter of fact. Nothing from the Democrats. There is nothing, which I think just aligns with Their position, their stance, you've heard it numerous times from the president, no strings attached, clean debt ceiling bill. Now, it turns out 43 Republicans in the Senate, the U.S. Senate, have signed a letter. Senator Mike Lee led this effort and have said, without spending cuts, 
We're not signing off here on a debt ceiling. Now, why is that important? Because, again, in the filibuster-proof U.S. Senate, you got to have 60 votes. They don't have them. And to get 60 votes, this is a problem when you have such an equally divided Senate as we have had for quite some time. You don't have the so-called supermajority. Therefore, a given party doesn't. Therefore, you got to pull some from the other party to get stuff done. And in this case, 43 senators, Republican senators, have said, nope, not on board. Both of Mississippi's U.S. senators, by the way, have also signed on to that letter. So this is a problem for the president. In attendance today will be two from the Senate, two from the House. And it's who you would expect. It's Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on the Senate side, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, representing the Republicans in the in the Senate in this so-called discussion scheduled for later today. Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, Minority Leader, who's really showed his socialist leanings, Hakeem Jeffries, future Speaker of the House, should the Democrats assume control of the lower chamber at some point, and he's still there. He would be the favorite for that. So they're supposed to talk today about this debt ceiling deal. And, of course, the Democrats, the president, has said, we're not negotiating. It's a done deal. We've got to have a clean debt ceiling bill. And this is all the Republicans are asking for. They will agree to raise the nation's debt limit by $1.5 trillion. Now, sadly, $1.5 trillion in the scheme of things is pocket change. That's how bad it is. It would roll back spending to 2022 levels and then allow for a 1% cap on future spending. We're talking about the discretionary the discretionary component of spending, which represents 30% of total spending. It claws back unspent COVID-19 funds, which is like $150 billion, which also is peanuts in the scheme of things. How could you object to that? You, Mr. President, have declared it's over. Because they never intended to negotiate. No doubt. That's why their first objection was they don't have a plan. <laughs> then when they pass a plan, no strings attached. That's right. You're right. Show us a plan. That was a very common refrain a short two months ago coming out of the White House. Now we have a 316-page plan. I'm sure he read that between ice cream cones. It it rescinds, rescinds proposed student loan payment relief, which is some $600 billion. Proposed. It just says, we're not going to do that. doesn't really cut any existing spending. It cancels this ridiculous $80 billion over 10 years for more IRS staff so they can shake down Americans. It does that, and it also cancels some of the goofy Green New Deal tax credit provisions embedded in the farcically mis 
farcically titled, I should say, Inflation Reduction Act. It is incredible. Now, yesterday, the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, she likened the need to pass a clean debt ceiling bill to paying your car payments, making your car payments, or your mortgage payments. She says, if you buy a home, you are to pay the mortgage every month. That is the expectation. That is the spending that you put forth, or spending that you may have done before. And now you're playing every month. If you do not pay your car payment, if you do not pay your mortgage payment, then your credit is going to be bad. It's going to hurt your credit. Yeah, but that doesn't matter anymore in this new age of mortgage rules where bad credit equals lower mortgage rates and good credit equals higher mortgage rates. Not to mention, Miss Jean-Pierre, why don't you apply that same standard to the $600 billion of student debt you want to just forgive? Can you believe this? The double standard? I know it's a rhetorical question. We've become accustomed to double standards. How can you say that with a straight face? Just replace mortgage with student debt in that statement. Let me repeat it for you. Replacing it thusly. If you buy, if you take out a student loan, you are to pay the student loan every month. That is the expectation. I agree, Miss Jean Pierre. So it applies to mortgages and automobile loans, but not student loans. Because you know why? The taxpayers are covering that. <laughs> it's just incredible. It's, you can't make it up, as they say. Oh, gosh. And there's more stuff coming out. So here's what we got going on this week, just to set the stage for how busy it's going to be. we got the debt ceiling talks later this afternoon after the show. Tomorrow, Representative James Comer in the House, he's going to start taking a hard look into these improprieties with Hunter Biden. i got to tell you, Rhino, I was a bit skeptical that something may materialize actionable. I'm not anymore. This this deal's bad. Now, it may go nowhere. I'm 100% convinced now, after just looking into that, reviewing that, that, in fact, he, the president was in on it. He knew it. I'm, I'm convinced of it. I really am. And, and that, yes, they were selling influence. Completely illegal. Unethical. Improper. Somebody needs to pay for this. We cannot allow people like that to have such, be at such high levels in our government. In this case, the highest. That's just not, that's not good. Can't do it. Also, when we uh, get going later on in the program, recent polls for the president, after he announces, they don't do what normally happens once an incumbent announces their plans to get elected again. No, he's defied that standard. We'll talk about that. But next, it's Wendy Bailey, Executive Director of the Mississippi Department of Mental Health. We're in the Element Well Studios. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
The great Joe Walsh, during his solo career, of course, he of Eagles fame, bumping us into this segment in the Element Well Studios. Joining us now, Wendy Bailey, Executive Director of the Mississippi Department of Mental Health. Wendy, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. All right, so May is Mental Health Awareness Month, correct? That is correct. So... Uh, what should we focus on? What should we be thinking about, given that May is the month that we, we highlight uh, this issue in our society? What should we be thinking about? I think it's fo- um, important to focus on recovery and how recovery is possible, um, receiving early treatment, and really acceptance. Just having a community and an environment where you can talk about your mental health. You know, we talk about our cholesterol and our blood pressure and, and all of our physical health problems. Um, but a lot of times we're not as comfortable talking about our mental health, maybe depression, anxiety, and we all experience this. Mm, sure. So it's important to really just have um, open communication, open dialogue, and acceptance. Is there a tendency maybe for a person to just be um, in, in just defiance that they're even experiencing some sort of mental health problem? I think a lot of times stigma and what we think other people are going to think um, can prevent us from wanting to seek help or to get help. And maybe we don't know how to seek help and how yeah. to get help. So a lot of that comes into play. But we know that one in five people have a serious mental illness. So hmm. it's very common. Um, it's just not talked about as much. What are some warning signs? How does one know? So changes in your eating or your sleeping habits, withdrawing, losing interest in your activities, isolating yourself, Hmm. um, feelings of sadness, depression, thoughts of suicide. These are all warning signs, but they're also things that we go through in our life at times. So what's important to remember is if it starts impacting your ability to go about your day-to-day life and activities, that's when you really need to reach out and you need to talk to someone. Hmm. It, it almost sounds similar to what uh, addiction can do to a person. It is. It is. And co-occurring, which is what we call if you have a serious mental illness and you also have an addiction issue, a co-occurring disorder, those are very common as well because a lot of times people who do have depression or anxiety, they may cope by using a substance or alcohol instead of receiving treatment. And that's something you absolutely have to be careful and watch out for. If a person feels like they're experiencing these sorts of symptoms, what should they do? What's the first thing they should do? So the first thing you should do is is talk to someone. Um, and that can be someone that you trust. That can be the faith-based community, maybe your pastor. We're doing a lot of education and awareness in the faith-based community. But there is a helpline in Mississippi. The Department of Mental Health has a 24-7 helpline. Um, it's 1-877-210-8513. And there's also a website called mentalhealthms.com. And you can go and you can find resources in your local community. Find out what providers are in your area of the state. If you are having thoughts of suicide, though, or harming yourself or others, um, we say don't wait, call 988. Hmm. And that has is a number. It's a national number, but we have call centers here in Mississippi. And you will hear from a trained counselor that can walk you through um, help that you need. What's the scope of the Department of Mental Health? The Department of Mental Health actually has three areas under its umbrella. And a lot of times people don't realize that. It's um, mental health, 
addiction services, so that's substance use treatment, and then also intellectual and developmental disabilities. So we have state-operated programs across the state, such as the state hospitals, and regional programs for people who have intellectual and developmental disabilities, and community homes for people who have IDD. And then we also have a responsibility to certify providers across the state that provide community-based services. Hmm. Interesting. Um, how long have you been with mental health? I have been with the agency 17 years. Wow. I have been in this role as executive director for um, almost two and a half. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, how has it changed from a, a legislative perspective? What uh, Anything happened uh, notable this year, the past couple of years, yes. measures that apply to the department? Um, we have had tremendous support from the legislature the last few years, uh, not only with our funding request, but also just in legislation that's moving the system forward. There's a much greater understanding, I think, across the state of the importance of community-based services. You have a need for inpatient beds for those people who need that at that point in time, but really building out a continuum to make sure that we have the services available in the community to prevent someone from needing to go to a hospital. Yeah. Um, so this year, House Bill 1222, which was authored by Representative Sam Creekmore, mm-hmm. was called the Collaborative Response to Mental Health Act. And it focuses on way we, ways we can divert people from needing that higher level of care and also has a significant emphasis on law enforcement training, which is really putting another tool in a law enforcement officer's tool belt on if they encounter someone who has a serious mental illness, how they can respond and de-escalate and prevent a bad outcome. Yeah. I read an article I shared with this uh, with you before we got on the air, Harvard Business Review. And when I checked it, even though I received it today, it was actually written in 2018. Mm-hmm. So I think because it being May Mental Health Awareness Month, they're uh, redistributing that uh, to their subscribers. And it's entitled, We Need to Talk More About Mental Health at Work. And the, the uh, article includes an analysis of just what it costs Mm-hmm. From a productivity perspective, and just, I mean, it breaks it down into economic terms when someone is inhibited because they're experiencing poor mental health and they're just not able to function and produce. Mm-hmm. That's right. It affects your work productivity and days that you miss work. You know, we really have to shift our focus from we, we want to, we want our um, employees in a workplace to be healthy. But we really only think about that physical health aspect, and we have to look at the mental health aspect as well. I saw a commercial recently. I was actually out of state, um, and it was... It shows this individual going through the process of he has cancer, going through treatments, and there's no words. And at the end, it says you have to support your coworkers who have cancer. And it's no different for people who are going through a mental health issue as well. Sure. You have to rally around them and support them and help them and make sure that they're getting the help that they need. That's why EAP programs are employee assistant programs where you can connect your employees with um, counseling and therapy are very important. Yes, yeah, so the article goes on to talk about how many large organizations are, are setting up um, treatment or s- at least some form of counseling, initial counseling available in the workplace, from uh, usually incorporated within the HR department, uh, to try to remove the stigma. And, and, to incur- and they're training others and their employees to recognize 
of the signs and to, as you said, to rally around other employees and just talk it out with other folks and and uh, maybe work through it. That's right. That's right. Really, that it goes back to that acceptance. Yeah. That acceptance and, and understanding that mental health is another part of your overall health and making sure that you as the community take care of the people that are around you. Yeah, and it goes on to talk about the our digital world, how that may be contributing as well. I see you shaking your head to the the incidence of just mental health problems that we need to be around other humans. That hasn't changed. That's right. Isolating yourself. And if you are experiencing a mental illness, a lot of times isolation is part of that. And then if you isolate and go to social media, I mean, I, you know, I have an 11 year old and I wish he would never know what social media is. I understand there's some benefits to it, too, but I think it also gives us the opportunity to to see things through a filtered lens that's not real. Yeah. Do you find, uh, Wendy, that there may be some other environmental factors that are that are cropping up now, evolving, that are contributing to an increased incidence of mental health? Financial problems, for example, comes to mind. Absolutely. You know, there's been several large studies done on the impact after COVID, the impact of either, either the isolation and the, the social distancing and not being around your family and your loved ones, and then the impact of financial losses, um, the impact that it had in schools with children not being in school and having that socialization. And I think we're going to see that for years to come, not only in the mental health realm, but also in the addiction realm. Yeah. Are, are there treatments? We've got about a minute left. Are there also uh, uh, drug treatments or anything like that? that There's a wide range of treatments. Uh, sometimes people just need outpatient therapy, some counseling, but there's also medications. There's self-care that you can do. Um, there's a lot of different ways that you can take care of your mental health. Makes sense. Well, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and we should focus on that. We appreciate you coming in, Wendy. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Thank you. Wendy Bailey, Executive Director of the Mississippi Department of Mental Health, has been our guest on Middays. We're taking a break right now, coming right back in the Element Well Studios. You're going to see it's a destiny. You've got a friend in me. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. back everyone live from the element well studios it is middays are you thinking about or planning for retirement do you have a plan go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let element wealth help you find your balance between income growth and guarantees also we're going to be at carter jewelers on thursday broadcasting live from High Street in downtown Jackson, Carter's Carter Jewelers, pardon me, will be having their annual Mother's Day balloon pop sale. Get you a ton of good deals. You know, the first time I did the show and we did that, and one was uh, 
was busted right in front of me there at the store. Some folks on the text line thought it was gunshots ringing out there in downtown Jackson. Just the annual balloon pop. That's all there is uh, to it. And you get a little piece of paper that's got a discount percentage in it. You make your selection and apply that discount that fell out of the balloon. Which is usually on top of an already discounted price. Very much true. And then on Friday, on the road again, all the way up to Fulton, Mississippi. That's this coming Friday. Itawamba Community College. It'll be their spring 2023 spring graduation. You'll hear about all the great things going on at ICC. That's Middays Live at Itawamba Community College this coming Friday. Yeah. All right. So I just saw a report that tomorrow Representative Comer is expected to review Joe Biden's bank records. I don't think this is going to be good for the president. I really don't. And I know some Democrats are getting a little nervous about this as well. And, and if, uh, of course, we teased just before we went to break that the president announces his plans to seek re-election, he's as upside down as I think any sitting president has been I haven't researched it, but it's it's got to be close to as low as it has ever been at this point during their first term. 36% approval rating? Now, that means a lot of Democrats don't approve either. And this is something to take note of. According to the Washington Post, so again, a more left-leaning publication... They show Trump leading Biden in a potential 2024 matchup, and they show DeSantis leading. I think Trump by seven points and DeSantis by five. That doesn't bode well for the Democrats here. I think they're trying to figure out what to do, honestly. And we've talked so many times on the program about concerns over the president's cognitive abilities. And honestly, we're, we're all subject to that at his age. It's not anything that, that we mock or make fun of or take any sort of consolation in. It's really more a function of just being worried about this guy being in charge. So I'm not sure if you got it, Ryan. I'll send some sound there for you where the president yesterday is uh, giving out some awards. And um, I think I sent it to you this morning. Giving out some awards, and he struggles to pronounce some names. I honored a group of trailblazing artists with National Medals of Arts and Humanities. The group included groundbreaking Asian-Americans like Vera Wang and, and, and Joan Shingang, I'm going to pronounce it right, Shanga Kowawa. I think I pronounced it correctly. She can call me Joe Bidden. (sighs) 
Now, look, you and I would struggle to pronounce these names as well. However, we don't have a team of people prepping us correct. for every public appearance. Correct. So you know what you do if you're concerned about mispronunciation? I've done it here. We've had guests on the show. And sometimes I'll go to Alex, our content director, and I'll say, is it this or this? And then she'll say, you know, I'm really not sure. And you know what she does? She goes and checks with them, asks them, comes back to me, and then she'll write it out phonetically. So there's no confusion. I got it. And that's just two people. Sometimes I've asked you. This is the president. This is not acceptable. You're giving awards. What does Dale Carnegie say? The sweetest sound to the human ears is that of their own name? Still applies. Still applies. That hasn't changed. Get it right. Not acceptable. And again, I acknowledge they're probably hard names to pronounce. No doubt. But, but you would have known that going in. Right. Got to be a little prepared. Like practice it a few times before you say it. Simple as that. But, but that's too much to expect from this White House. I mean, just look at the word salad that comes out of the VP's mouth anytime she opens it. Oh, my gosh. Somewhere We're unburdened the by the unburdening of unburdenedness. <laughs> everything's going to have unburdened in it. Uh, what what did uh, what is it she says unburdened from the past or something to that effect? And I saw a montage of that. I had no idea. She said it like eight thousand times in the last two years. I had no idea. Repeats it. Now, it's human nature. We repeat things that kind of stick in our heads. I get that. But you're the vice president. Got to be a little better. And in her case, it's it's rather continuous. You have that sort of word salad situation. So we have that going on. We have the debt ceiling today. We have Representative Comer going to investigate the Biden bank records. And then on Thursday, Title 42 comes to an end. That's going to be a madhouse. It's crazy. It is crazy. It's crazy that you even need Title 42 just to secure the borders, because that goes back to COVID. That's what's crazy about it. I mean, it's already crazy, and it's just going to get worse. No doubt. And they're bracing for it best they can. Best they can. I don't know. It's a concern. Now... With respect to this debt ceiling deal, did you know in theory the president could use, crazy as this is, the 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment to effectively challenge the debt limit debacle on legal grounds? This would be the first time in U.S. history that a president would do so. And all the 14th Amendment states that, quote, the validity of the public debt authorized by law, and there's some other words, but shall not be questioned. So some 
legal scholars say that this gives the Treasury Department the ability to just keep on borrowing money and shelling it out without congressional approval. Yeah, that's being discussed, literally, right now. It feels like an even bigger stretch than the trillion-dollar platinum coin. <laughs> I agree. Uh, and see, this is the problem you run into when when you hear folks say, well, I'm a constitutional conservative. I, I agree. I get it. I'm all for adherence to the Constitution. But according to whose interpretation, that's where it gets a little dicey. Because one person's fully constitutional law, policy, action is another's egregious violation of it. It's kind of like agreeing on how many genders there are. There's no consensus on that. That's what we have courts for. So this is something that surely could wind up in the court. It's crazy. But that's what we're dealing with. I didn't get to it yesterday, but when we come back, I I did want to just touch on, because I think it's important that folks understand this, what has to happen in terms of spending cuts, how that impacts the various functions of government, the spending cuts as proposed by Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy. I think it'll shock you when you find out exactly what it means by the various Uh, government functions. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Well, studios, we thank you so much for joining us. Jeff from Loosedale, regarding our discussion with Wendy Bailey earlier in the program, executive director of the Mississippi Department of Mental Health, says, thank you, thank you, thank you, Gerard, and to Wendy for talking about this important subject. I suffer from complex PTSD, and I live a life of isolation and I have found that isolation is the worst possible environment for one's mental health. Well, first, thank you, Jeff, and uh, we're praying for you, man. We want you to uh, do better and thrive. It feels like, as a society, we keep relearning things that we've known for a long time. Like, the idea that isolation is bad for the human soul is not a new concept. Right. I mean, you can go back to, what was it? 
1620 something when John Donne wrote No Man is an Island. Hmm. So true. I mean, we're just wired that way. We, it's it's one of the reasons uh, that I fairly strongly oppose this remote work situation. I understand there are lots of jobs where you live somewhere and you you maybe have responsibilities as part of your your uh, job life, your work life, where there is no physical office around. But gosh, I just think about how much I look forward every day to going to the office to see all the folks and to interact with them. We're a family. I think, I think most people would say that in their work environments. I mean, it's, it's not to say that you interact with everybody, but you usually have your circle that you're friends with. And I mean, you, even at a job you don't particularly care for, you're going to find some comfort in cracking jokes at the job's expense with a coworker. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And, and sometimes it just kind of cleanses the mind a little bit for, uh, you know, sitting down and, and doing either stressful physical labor or sitting down. You're usually not do, sitting down doing physical labor, but sitting down and doing in, intense uh, mental type work. You sometimes have to break. It's no different than, I guess, when you're when you're studying. You have to take a break every now and then and cleanse it. Athletes playing sports, they're taught breathe, take cleansing breaths. There's something to that. And sometimes just getting Both up. Both in the moment and seasonally. Like you, you've seen a push now where your, your kid may be the most gifted and blessed athletically, but they need a season off. They can't play every possible sport year-round or they're going to burn out both mentally and physically. Something to be said for that, no doubt. So we're thinking about you, Jeff. Appreciate that. On the ceasefire text line, the Republicans will cave on the debt ceiling. I'm not sure exactly what that means. What does that mean, cave on the debt ceiling? And I asked, and, and the person just said they will give in at the last minute and the libs will win. Win what exactly? And what does that mean by cave? And so let's keep this in mind. Republicans have one half of one-third of the lawmaking body. The combined lawmaking elements of the House, the Senate, and the White House. Republicans have one-third of it. They really don't They don't call the shots. They can stand in the way. They can obstruct. My personal opinion is they're likely to get blamed more than the White House for that, and that will probably hurt them in the midterms, which means we're in store, we would be in store for more Democrat radical I mean, spending. if they were in the White House, they'd be blamed, too. Oh, I think that's true. Certainly blamed Republicans by the media. Republicans are going to be blamed for anything that goes wrong with the government, even though the government is predominantly Democrat at this point. I agree. From a media perspective, I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of, of voters, where it matters, because it's, it's what you got to – that's who you got to get to to get power. So, and let's be clear, that this these spending cuts are relatively minor. The, the major cut in the whole deal – that's more impactful than anything else, is really uh, just holding the line on the increase in spending, which is sort of crazy when you think about it. That has more of an impact 
than than anything, and that and that's where Joe is with respect to you're cutting out veterans benefits and you're cutting this out and that out. And it's really about future reductions in increases, which suggests that they don't believe there's absolutely anything else that can be touched, eliminated, reduced, decreased. Nothing else to make up for this uh, this cap, this one percent cap on future discretionary spending. That's where we are. It is time for a break here. It's top of the hour. That means Fox News, Super Talk News. When we return, Emmy Perkins, Miss Mississippi. Stay with us. Now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays Live from the Element Wealth Studios. And joining us now is Emmy Perkins, Miss Mississippi. Emmy, thanks for coming on. Well, good morning, and thank you for having me. I'm excited. Absolutely. So we got a pageant coming up pretty soon, We sure do. It's in June in Vicksburg, and somebody will take on the role of Miss Mississippi, and I will be able to turn in the keys to the amazing (laughs) car and relax a little bit. Have you enjoyed it? It's been oh, I've fun. enjoyed it so much. And actually, this Wednesday, I complete my 82-county school tour with my last county. And so it's been an absolute blessing and dream to travel our entire state and to visit a school in every county of our state and then obviously make appearances beyond that as well. What's the message when you visit the schools? It's a message of hope for me. I feel like... In our school systems across the state of Mississippi, these students need a public figure to remind them that it is possible to achieve their dreams and be whatever they want to be, regardless of their circumstance. And, you know, I've seen a lot of really sad situations across the state. But when I meet those kids, when I see their faces light up, when they see Miss Mississippi, when they hear the message of my music program that I bring to them, it's all worthwhile. And I've definitely done my job by giving that message to them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, are any Do any of them aspire, perhaps, to uh, be Miss Mississippi? Yeah, absolutely. They, you may, 20 years from now, you may see them sitting in this chair <laughs> interviewing with you if you're still doing this. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yes, absolutely. What about the uh, the other representatives from the other states? Have you yes. have you built some sort of newfound friendships as Absolutely. a result of this? This is so interesting. I never thought that I would have so many friends across the United States, and I've actually developed friendships with girls from every corner of our country. And it's really funny. I just got back from New York City, where I spent a weekend with Miss New York, Miss Tennessee, and Miss Arizona. We did a scholarship benefit night for the New York organization, and then. And in a couple of weeks, I'll head on to Disney World yeah. with Miss Massachusetts, Miss Florida, and Miss Louisiana. So you never know who you're going to meet and the opportunities that you're going to have That's to cool. travel to all these amazing places. I'm completely changed because of the impact this year's had on my life. When did you get started in pageants? 
in college when I realized really? I needed to figure out how to pay the bills. And <laughs> that it did. I've earned over $30,000 wow. from this organization. So it's a testament to the amazing things it can do for young women. And it's exciting to see all of these young women who will be competing in Vicksburg stepping up to the plate and getting ready to create their own stories. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What are your uh, career plans? My career plan? That's the million-dollar question, of course. isn't it? <laughs> so I'm actually going to go back to school in the fall because I had six credits left at Mississippi State. Go Bulldogs. Okay. And then I I majored in public relations with a minor in music. And then afterwards, I'll go get my graduate degree because I have so much scholarship money to utilize. And I think I'm going to get either my MBA or some kind of entertainment graduate degree. Okay, but what do you want to do? You tell me about it. I'd love my dream job would be to be a backup singer for Beyonce. That's just the dream. <laughs> okay. But honestly, lately I've been thinking about working in the field of entertainment, something okay. with, you know, it's public speaking and I would even love to work for some kind of political position um, for the president. That would be kind of sure. cool. Yeah. The, the sky is the limit. Absolutely. Well, I'm confident you will succeed well, no matter you. what thank your career you. choice is. This definitely is a great opportunity this year to create connections across our state and across our country. It's like the best internship I've ever had. That's kind of how I explain it to people. Yeah. Yeah. A sense of pride when you're yes. uh, representing the great state of Mississippi? Oh, my gosh. So much pride in my heart. And I think even more so now that I've traveled the entire state, I think that the one word that I keep coming back to is the people of our state. Mm-hmm. They are so unique. They're so diverse. And they're so impactful from the top to the bottom. And when we say the word hospitality, we really mean it here in Mississippi because our people are what makes us unique. And as a musician, it's been really neat to explore the musical side of our state and all the culture and the history that Mississippi carries when it comes to music. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Uh, so uh, so successful are Mississippians uh, across the spectrum of uh, artistic disciplines, of course, business as well, yes, yes. health. I mean, we have uh, so many great assets in our state, and you, you represent as well. Well, thank you. What do other folks want to know, other um, folks that represent yeah. their specific states, your, your peers? What do they want to know about our state? I think that they would be pleasantly surprised with the level of hospitality in our state because mm-hmm. from traveling all over the country even this year, I've realized how special we are. Mm-hmm. I've realized how unique we are. It's almost like when you come to Mississippi, you don't meet a stranger. I think that we truly lend a spirit and an aura of of hospitality that transcends beyond any other state i mean we will give you the shirt off our back and we really show that when we interact with people when we meet people and it's funny the stereotypes that people hold about our state that i got to kind of prove wrong when i went to miss america a lot of girls were very curious what's it like to live in mississippi what do you guys do for fun what would it be like if i visited and to be able to tell them and paint a picture of my state and what the people have to offer and the amazing things that you can do here was really special for me would you do that when you paint that picture, Emmy, do you find that there may be a little surprise? It's different than what their perceptions were? Absolutely, yes. And I actually had a great-grandfather immigrate from Jazine, Lebanon. My family, that side of my family, was Lebanese. And so when they came over to Mississippi, my great-grandfather opened a convenience store in Laurel, Mississippi. Okay. And he would let people come shop for groceries. And this was around the Great Depression. And when they no longer could afford their groceries because of the financial struggles that they were going through, 
through, he had this big box called the IOU box, and they would take their grocery receipts and slip it in the box, and it would kind of be a sign that I'm going to come back and pay you later when times are better. Hmm. And so when they finally came back to pay him and they had you know regained their footing, he ripped up the receipts and said, you have given me the American dream and the Mississippi dream. Wow. Let me give a little bit back to you. That's awesome. And so that's the story I really like to harp on and tell people about how I feel like our whole entire Mississippi experience is summed up. The hospitality, the generosity, the mentality that, you know, we can help each other out because it will always come back full circle. Yeah, I think it's true. At the end of the day, Mississippi uh, is a very close-knit community, and I think that does uh, resonate outside of our yes, state. Yes. I think that's understood about our state. It's it's a key asset, and yeah. it's a huge selling feature. When I recently traveled to Family Feud, I went and filmed with my family, which was so much fun. But even there, when we were filming Family Feud, Steve Harvey stopped the show and was like, I golf in, Moss, uh, in West Point, Mississippi. <laughs> I love the golf course there. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, people from all over the country and the world somehow have some kind of connection to our great state, well, which cool. is so cool. I like to play golf there, too. Yeah, so you may run into Steve. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> Pretty cool. Uh, that that really yes. is. Uh, anything interesting about uh, some of the others who represent their states with respect to their career plans? Did you find out about any that you thought, this, this is kind of unusual? Yeah, this there is- were a lot of content creators, which I okay. found really unique and also really inspiring that that could be somebody's full-time career. Okay. And so learning from my friend, Miss New York, about how content creation works, what the day-to-day of her life looks like, how she partners with brands. That was super, super unique. But then also something I found interesting was I was one of the youngest candidates at Miss America. I'm only 22, and I thought, oh, I'm so old and big and bad, and I got there. And, you know, I'm still having to finish my undergraduate degree in college, and these women are 26, 27 years old, you know, getting started in their careers and really digging into what they're passionate about. And so it's very inspiring to look at it as almost like a mentorship opportunity to be inspired by other women that have gained footing with their career and chased their dreams. Is it possible to prepare for the range of questions you may receive? I mean, is that even Absolutely possible? Absolutely not. And I'll <laughs> even say, since being ground Miss Mississippi, it's been interesting to see the kind of questions that the public ask you. I had a kid ask me when inflation was super bad. He looks at me at a school visit and he goes, Miss Mississippi, is there any way you can lower the gas prices? <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, people really do think Miss Mississippi can do it all. <laughs> Well, yeah. I was like, if I would, I could, kid, because I'm struggling, too. So it's it's just random. It's so random. You can't prepare. And I think as a public figure, you learn to face those challenges and really think through the questions that people ask, because there are some really heavy-hitting questions. There's a lot of public opinion that comes from being Miss Mississippi. And so it's like, it's truly... Every single day is a practice on how to become the best version of yourself, but then also on how to represent an entire state of people at the same time. Seems like you have to guard against maybe being uh, impulsive. Yes, yes. You definitely have to think through things and be thoughtful, and you have to really learn from your mistakes and learn from the things that, you know, work and don't work kind of thing. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah it, it makes total sense. So, again, when's the, uh, when's the pageant coming up? Yes, content? so you can actually stream the pageant live on TV. It'll be streaming across news platforms in the state of Mississippi on June 10th, which is our final night of competition when we will replace me and name a new <laughs> Miss Mississippi, which is so exciting. But the preliminary competitions are the 7th through the 9th in Vicksburg, Mississippi, with the final night being on the 10th. You can actually buy tickets at miss-mississippi.com slash shop so people can go buy their tickets there or if they can't make it live they can tune in on tv for that final night sounds great emmy thanks for coming in congratulations and thank you for uh, representing our state um so graciously we appreciate it i appreciate you taking the time to interview me you got it emmy perkins miss mississippi everyone we're stepping aside for a break in the element well studios coming right back Now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, on to the real part. Dynamite! On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays. We appreciate Miss Mississippi Emmy Perkins for joining us in the Element Well Studios. What a delight she was to speak to. Handled herself with class and grace and a fine representative for the great state of Mississippi. We are grateful she visited with us today. Dan in Hattiesburg says, we love Emmy. She's awesome. You know, having... Visited with the students last week, as I shared, and then with uh, Emmy. I'm so optimistic. I know a lot of people think, oh, it's over. It's the end. Just can't recover. Done deal. I don't feel that way. I really don't. And I think the more you think that, the more you're almost willing it to occur. Isn't there something, Rhino, about I don't know which of the scientists advised this, but you're supposed to envision, you're supposed to try to see what you want to occur. Right? That's that's how you... I mean, going to a pastime you love, it's it's more than just literally see the bat hit the ball. If you spend time beforehand visualizing in your head... All right, if he throws it outside and I swing this way, I see it hit, yeah. the, see it hit the ball, hit the fat part of the bat, and it goes into right field. If, as long as if you visualize that beforehand, when you actually watch the ball all the way to the bat, it's easier to connect. No doubt. We used to teach the kids, don't just focus on the ball, focus on the middle of the ball. I mean, really hone in on that. I would teach them to blink their eyes when they got in the box and then focus on the emblem on the pitcher's hat to get your eyes adjusted at that distance. Pick the ball up out of the hand and focus as hard as you can on the middle. That also cleanses your head of any other thoughts. But you're right. Right before that, I teach them, see it in the gaps. 
That's what you're shooting for, trying to hit a line drive in the gaps. So if you miss, okay, maybe it just gets in the hole down the line or something. That's the whole idea of the game. But it, but back to the the point, if all you do is visualize bad things, bad things are likely to happen. You gotta you gotta be optimistic. It's it's what made Ronald. It's a Reagan. lot harder to win with a defeatist attitude. No doubt about it. No, absolutely no doubt about it. And when you just before you ever before you ever roll the dice, before you ever take the first snap, throw the first pitch, we're dead, we're gone, it's over. And there's a difference between defeatist and pessimistic. It's actually smart to be a little pessimistic when looking at at a at an objective you want to be optimistic and pessimistic you want to hope for the best but prepare for the worst but if you're constantly focused on only the negative only the pessimistic side of that equation then you develop a defeatist attitude and you're digging yourself a hole that it's hard to get out of not only that it's just miserable it's a miserable way to live it really is so, I've, I'm positive, I'm optimistic because of a recent experience of being around folks her age. I'll be long gone, they'll be in charge. I feel good about that. That's what I'm saying. And, and I hope folks do as well. That doesn't mean we don't have challenges, we don't have problems. we got to address those, recognize those, size those up, frame them. Absolutely. That's life. And I know sometimes you look at our political situation and you see some of the crazy stuff going on. Heck, we've talked about it on the show. And you shake your head, but my faith is still in positive future. I don't see how – I don't see any other route. You know, something that, that made me think about, we've discussed many times, is this whole electric vehicle deal and – and uh, just how impractical, as I would say, that is for widespread adoption, pervasive use. Not ready. And opponents of it, of course, point out all the risks, all the challenges with everything from weight to range to consuming too much power from the grid all the way down to where do we get the materials to produce the batteries. A lot of that comes from our most ardent foe, China. And much of it is mined by slave labor and uh, where the techniques used in extracting those materials from the earth are not eco-friendly. All kinds of things, right? I, I hear you. I agree. But I've always said, don't underestimate human innovation. I saw this morning a report I read from um, MIT successfully have tested sodium-powered batteries. Sodium. Now, this has been going on a while, but now they've had some uh, some breakthroughs, some success. Well, as you know, we're not going to run out of sodium (laughs) anytime soon, if ever. It's abundant everywhere, and it's dirt cheap. 
That's human innovation at work, right there. And if it works out the way they believe it could work out, we may be looking at sodium the same way we look at silicon. Absolutely. Another abundant mineral in the Earth's atmosphere. Yep. Although sodium's not a mineral, it's an element, but yeah. That's right. On the chart. Uh, But, gosh, think about how that could change that whole game dramatically. And that's, that's just one little glimpse of a breakthrough. Again, the point is, don't underestimate human innovation. It, it wouldn't be wise to do so. My bet's on humans to solve human problems. Back to this debt ceiling deal. And I know that we had someone on the text line that said the Republicans will cave. I don't exactly know what that means, cave. We're not going to default on paying our debt. That's not going to happen. That would be global economic collapse. That's not going to happen. But I do think it's reasonable to leverage this situation, as McCarthy is, with the president. Hey, Mr. President, this debt, these deficits and this debt are out of control. We've got to take action. Now's the opportune time to do that because we're facing a uh, situation where we're going to hit the debt ceiling and the country can't operate, honestly, can't function without changing that and extending it, unfortunately. I think he's right in leveraging that opportunity because they won't talk about it otherwise. This is This is like a real hard, fast deadline, if you will, rather than, hey, can we just talk about reining in spending? Oh, we'll get to that later, which we never do. So I I support that approach, that strategy. Well, it's because nothing in government can be done on a responsible timeline. It's ridiculous. You've got to wait till the last possible minute so there's enough leverage on one side or the other to get something done because nobody wants to actually talk. That's so true. So... The funding cap that is proposed in McCarthy's bill would cut discretionary spending, and just, again, for clarification, that includes defense. That's half of discretionary spending, which is 30% of, roughly, of total spending. So, thus, it's 15% of total spending, defense. All the other government apparatus it comprises the other 15%. That's health and human services, education, housing and urban development, justice, Department of State, transportation, agriculture, NASA, veterans, energy, treasury, interior, labor, the Social Security Administration, not Social Security benefits, the, the organization that administers it, commerce, EPA, Corps of Engineers, All that adds up to the other 15% of government. 15%. So when we come back, we'll do the math to you, just explain what the spending caps would do to defense and to that entire remaining component of government. After Paul Simon with Kodachrome bumps us out of this segment on middays, we're in the Element Well Studios. Oh, man. 
Mornings with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. The gypsy woman told my mother before I was born. I got a boy charge coming. He's gonna be a son of a gun. He's gonna make pretty women's jump and shout. Then the world wanna know. What this all about. We are back in the Element Well Studios. It's middays. We appreciate you joining us today. So Chris from Oxford says, see if you can decipher this. Tell me if I'm way off base. I really believe if you found something to replace oil and gas that is dirt cheap and abundant, there would be something else pop up in our everyday life that would go astronomically high or, say, an asteroid hit Earth and had a trillion tons of gold and diamonds on it to make what we have on Earth worthless now. That would be something else to come and take its place. That's what I'm trying to say. Not really sure what point you're trying to make there, Chris. Um, I'd have to think about that. Uh, I mean, there, scarcity will always exist in some form or fashion. Well, sure. I mean, the the fundamental challenge of of humans is always been and always will be, honestly, matching scarce supply with ever increasing demand. I mean, that's been the fundamental problem of humanity since the earth was inhabited. And if you think back to the discovery that oil, a a resource underneath our feet, naturally occurring underground, could be converted to energy, that was a pivotal moment in history that changed the trajectory of human life on the planet. Without that discovery, I'm not sure where we are, honestly. We wouldn't have as many people on the planet as we do. I don't think the planet could support them. That's the whole point. And if you think about all the the ways that tool, energy, was used to create other inventions and Produce more innovation, again, to solve human problems. That's the, that is the constant. That, that is the constant quest of humans. So, right, I, I hear you, Chris. Something could displace something new, novel, could displace something else that exists. Sure, that's that's always going on. I could I could think of just and you could too of um, examples of that just in our short period on the Earth. I guess something that kind of comes to mind visibly is my mother hanging clothes on the clothesline because there were no dryers. How many houses have clotheslines in the backyard now? A much lower percentage, right? And in apartment life, it was. Try to hang them up outside your window or on your little porch or something because there was no way to dry. That's just one really simple example. There used to Which be, is why if you watch any movie showing life in, say, New York City, 
and the movie's set anywhere from, say, 1930 to probably the mid-'90s before the, the laws changed and the code changed, you'd have that alleyway shot where there'd be clotheslines strung back and forth between the buildings. You're right. And I, and I see you gesturing with your hand. That is how they were sort of zigzag, top to bottom, stacked vertically, literally, just because of the lack of space. I mean, you couldn't just have one single line at the surface at the same level like you would at a house, for example. I remember as a child we had a boxer, beautiful dog. His name was Don Foe. And he was around before I was. <laughs> and uh, he used to like to play with my mother, take running shots at her and hit her in the legs while she was hanging the clothes up. She was swatting him, you know. Oh, gosh. The only cooling I had growing up was an attic fan with the windows up, Johnny and Brandon says. A lot of people. I, we had one in the window in my bedroom that made an awful racket. Yeah, right, before we had air conditioning. And think about schools most of us in our generation went to. Didn't have air conditioning, and windows were open all the time. Big fans in the classroom. So, I mean, those are... Very simplistic examples, but they're things that happen in our lifetime. It's just a, I think, a way to, I guess, account for what Chris says, which is sure, there's always new inventions that replace uh, existing goods and services and, and existing apparatus that we use. Sure, that's always going to be the case. And I think there's no different here with respect to all sorts of new forms of energy. But it's not next year. It's not on the timeline that the Democrats are pushing for. That it's it's not that reasonable people are opposed to any forms of energy, honestly. I mean I think clear thinking people say, Yeah, bring it all on. We we need as much as we can get. And honestly, we're more prosperous and safer when we have more sources. Just don't force it. Let the market Work it out. It's it's coming, but when you start putting these stupid fake deadlines on on um, this evolution, it, it costs money. It makes us less safe, and more importantly, it, it takes us backwards in quality of life. Like this, these appliance rules coming out: less water, less power for your dishwashers and your your washing machines, and all these. What were once luxuries now very common in our life, even in apartments. I mean, it's that's been a while, but I remember when that was a big selling feature, Rhino, when I was apartment shopping. Hookups for your washer and dryer. That was a big deal. It still sort of is, but it's a lot more common, a lot more commonly found in apartments than it was back then, where you had the sort of community for the apartment complex Washers and dryers, most of the time, which didn't work. <laughs> Always broken, it seemed like. But, yeah, so like salt instead of oil and gas. Well, this in this case, the salt, the sodium, Chris, would be used uh, to create the batteries, to produce the batteries. That's the discovery. That's the breakthrough. It's been on for a while. I heard Delbert's commercial earlier says Jeff in Forest County. It mentioned ballot harvesting. If somebody brings a ballot from the infirm at a nursing home, that is considered ballot harvesting. No, it's not, really. Um, 
You know, there are laws uh, that prescribe who can collect a ballot from someone who is infirmed. I believe, Rhino, in the state of Mississippi, you and I looked that up. It's been a few weeks, as I recall. There's the law lists those who are qualified under the law to do so, family members, etc. Maybe some medical personnel working with the individual who is infirm. What it doesn't allow, as I recall, are just political operatives to just show up at a nursing home and start traversing the halls, knocking on the doors. Hey, you got a ballot, didn't you? If you didn't, let me help you get that. And then I'll help you fill it out, and I'll take it back for you. That, that's what you can't do, especially, again, someone who is working on behalf of a party or a candidate. That's where the ballot harvesting gets to be a little, a little malicious, and maybe malicious isn't the proper term, although it certainly could be. I mean, there are videos of Californians... Like the ballot harvester showed up to a family's house, and they only wanted the Democrat votes. Okay, there you go. They were only there to collect Democrat votes. Well, at a minimum, that's nefarious. So I didn't actually hear the ad. I know that those just started running maybe yesterday, I believe, uh, Delbert, so I haven't heard it. Um, But I I also know that, uh, I guess we were informed, Rhino, that Senator Chris McDaniel is also running ads on our network. He, a candidate for lieutenant governor. Sam from Mount Hermon says, Gerard, the environmentalist, will always find something wrong with anything that we may invent to help humanity. Uh, yeah, sure, um, Sam. But I mean, that, just look at Greta Thunberg getting arrested at a protest because the windmills were built where the reindeers <laughs> used to live. That's true. It just seems like the just common sense needs to be injected into this issue. I don't think you have to be a scientist to understand just what's just logical here. Reasonable is what we got to do. Let's see here. The um, Why do you say, this is on the ceasefire tax line, why do you say default on the debt won't happen? I tend to agree with you, but wondering what your explanation is for your statement. Well, what I mean by that is we won't default on debts owed. We're going to pay, the country's going to pay its debts. It's never defaulted on those, and doing so would be catastrophic, honestly, for the country um, and for the world. Delaying payments would be a huge problem, but default, um, in delaying payments is is a default, but a permanent default, that's a temporary default, a permanent default would be, we're just not paying you. We know we owe you $31 trillion. We're just not going to pay you. That's, that means this country is over. You think about what would be required to replace the dollar, that would make it happen. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. You know what that means. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live on Super Talk Mississippi.
Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. So Jeff says, it seems like colleges and universities in the state of Mississippi would have polling places at each one for students that come from out of town to study. Well, you can vote absentee. It's a pretty simple process, honestly. You can vote by mail, too, in Mississippi. They're in college. You can quit holding their hands. They need to be adults. Right. I mean, it's pretty simple. I've had to do it because I... Business travel necessitated me being out of town on election day. It's a pretty simple process. I think that's half the problem with what's facing our country is we've continually moved the, the idea of childhood farther and farther into adulthood. No doubt. We coddle. Way too long. No doubt That's why it. you got study breaks with coloring books and bubbles. It's nuts. Totally agree. And if they can't figure out how to vote absentee, are they really of sound enough mind to be voting in the first place? Yeah, I agree. I mean, geez. Unbelievable. While the House is one-third of the government, says Artie in West Point, I feel like they are in the driver's seat on this one since all spending bills must, must originate from here. But, Artie, this isn't really, this isn't really about spending as much as it is the debt ceiling. So they are not in the driver's seat on taking action to lift the debt ceiling. That's the point. They're using spending proposals in the 316-page bill as um, they're trying to get buy-in on that from the president. The Limit, Save, Grow Act is how it is styled as a condition, if you will, to agree to lift the debt ceiling. As, as we stated earlier, that bill includes lifting the debt ceiling, the government's ability to borrow money by $1.5 trillion. And it'll come up again. That's clearly not enough because we deficit spend, so as long as we spend more than we take in, we're also adding to the debt. And it, this will happen again. It's a short-term Remedy, if you will. So somebody, uh, again, why do you say the default in the debt won't happen? And I think both sides know that that would be disastrous for the country. Of course, Biden is playing that up, and I think fear-mongering it more than the Republicans are, because it's real simple to solve the problem, which is just to agree to these very reasonable, relatively small spending cuts. Now, where it gets a little more of a factor is in the future with respect to, I talked about this a minute ago, with respect to how this limiting the increase in spending would affect the discretionary portion. So again, if in accordance with what Republicans have said, no cuts to defense. So now we're not going to cut mandatory spending, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all the other um, benefit programs, government assistance programs, and debt. Not going to touch that. That's 70%. Republicans have said that. Donald Trump said it. 
Now you're down to just 30 percent discretionary, and then the Republicans say we can't touch defense. That's 15 percent. Now we're down to 15 percent. So if we put these caps in place and we don't touch what is 85 percent of spending, that means all these caps on the increase in spending would affect the remaining 15 percent. Here's what would happen. It means we would cut the budgets for health and human services, education, housing, urban development, justice, state, transportation, the whole litany of government agencies, agriculture, etc., by 51%. That's probably not going to happen. And this is, gives ammunition to the president and the Democrats. They're going to cut the budgets of those organizations in half. And I will share with you a group that would not be happy about that in Mississippi, obviously, would be the agricultural community. And it's understandable because the budget of the Department of Agriculture, and there's some other monies in there that benefit the agriculture industry, would be cut by half, 51%, just as one example And so what that means is what we've said so many times on the program, until we start addressing the mandatory portion of spending, we're just wasting our time. We're not going to get it done by addressing just this limited half of discretionary spending. And I believe there are cuts to be had in defense as well, despite the fact that Republicans say, no, we got to keep increasing spending there. We are stepping aside for Fox News and Super Talk News. Coming right back, another hour left in middays in the Element Well Studios. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply, to think deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone hour three of middays live from the element wealth studios we thank you so much for joining us today don't forget thursday at carter jewelers downtown jackson friday up in fulton mississippi at itawamba community college for the spring 2023 graduation looking forward to that Mo says, there is a push in Texas to raise the age to buy an assault-style weapon to 21. I'd respond with, only if we restrict them from voting and driving until they are 21, too. The argument would immediately change. Yeah, it's possible. I, I agree. That would be interesting. Crosby Simmons says, in Inverness, says, Mr. G, I think in New Zealand, if there isn't a balanced budget, given to the prime minister, the heads of the government, equivalent to our speaker and senate leader, are pitched out. I didn't know that. Wow. That changed things around, wouldn't it? No doubt about it. So one thing we should point out, Rhino, is there's a difference between a government shutdown and a default on the debt. Okay, so the government shutdown, that occurs 
when we run out of money appropriated, and you got to go appropriate more. That's how we end up with these continuing resolutions out the wazoo. Just keep it going at the same level. And we have had government shutdowns in the past as a result of uh, running out of money to spend that has been appropriated. This is totally different. Defaulting on the debt. By the way, government shutdown, that's an economic problem. It's a pain. Defaulting on the debt, that is an existential problem. That's completely different. When you just say, hey, we can't borrow anymore to pay the bills that you've already incurred. That's just an old stiff arama is all that is. Sorry, we're not paying you. So that's what's happening today as they gather up at the White House. I think it's scheduled for 3 o'clock our time, if I'm not mistaken, for this meeting to take place. And uh, we'll see what comes about. We're 48 hours away from Title 42 ending. I'm looking at the images here in the studio. Immigrants are gathering up in droves, as to be expected. And now you've got New York City. You've seen this? Mayor Eric Adams, who presides over a sanctuary city. They're not acting too sanctuarial, are they? (laughs) Now he says, we're sending them out to the suburbs. They're going to bus them to the suburbs. What the heck? I thought you were a sanctuary city. Send them all to us. Isn't that what you're basically saying when you declare yourself a sanctuary city? What am I missing there? That means we're offering sanctuary. Come one, come all. We're friendly. But now they're saying, don't send any more. <laughs> and they're busting them out to nearby counties. And now those county managers, executives, government officials, now they're lashing back out at New York City. What a dang mess. Why don't you, what you guys all ought to do, Adams, and of course you got Lori Lightfoot in Chicago with similar issues and problems. They're all bent out of shape because Governor Abbott of Texas says, we're overloaded. You guys got to help out. We're sending them your way. You are a sanctuary city, right? What well, remember, they Lori Lightfoot lost. But she's still... Is she still? I thought she was still in for right now. Maybe not. Yeah, she's she. I know she lost, but I didn't know. She, uh, I didn't think that her successor had taken office yet. Oh, that's right. She's complaining. Let's put it this way. And so, I'm just thinking, why don't they pick the dang phone up and call the president, who's the leader, as a result of their party? and say, stop it, close the dang border. They won't do that. They'd rather point fingers and deflect at Governor Abbott in Texas. He didn't cause this. Gosh, that's so upside down. So I'm looking at a report right now. It says nearby Rockland County, which is adjacent to the counties that form New York City. They're going to fight New York City on their migrant bus plan. (laughs) Gosh, dog, what a crazy joke. 
Brian in Madison says, yeah, Lori Lightfoot got fired. She did. Unfortunately, they replaced her with someone who's just as loony as she is and as far left, a self-avowed socialist, as I recall. Now, last week we shared the news that the Colorado, crazy stuff going on in Colorado, the state of Colorado's teachers' union, has essentially adopted a resolution denouncing capitalism. Now comes a member of the Denver City Council, and she's offered a proposal. We may have some sound here for you. She's offered a proposal to the City Council on how they should restructure taxation of the businesses that operate in the city of Denver. She has a plan for that, of course. Capitalism was built on stolen land, stolen labor, and stolen resources. And a check today could not um, undo the cumulative impact of generations of that stolen wealth in all of those categories. And so I think it has to come in the form of land, labor, and resources in an ongoing fashion. And there are structures that we have that could be flipped to begin to do that that reparations. Um, In fact, my opponent here mentioned Five Points and the Corridor and what has happened to our businesses there. Part of what has catalyzed that um, exponential decimation of black businesses is the Five Points bid, the Business Improvement District, which further steals... Um, from the community through taxation. And I think there's a model that could be redistributed. Instead of a bid collecting extra taxation from the black and brown businesses that are struggling, you could be collecting those extra taxes from white-led businesses all over the city and redistributing them to black and brown-owned businesses who are not part of it or are simply just black or brown owned. And that's one way to give back um, in the business form fashion. I think when we talk about um, resources being returned, this is where consumer owned or municipally owned resources are important because we are locked out of owning our control or over our basic needs like um, water or utilities or anything. We're locked out. There is a way for us to change that structure and put black and brown people in ownership positions over our basic needs. I also really uh, want to point out that the basic income project uh, could be, if it were focused, uh, an important way to return a check to an individual in an ongoing fashion. There you go. In its current format is not reparations or not close to reparations. One, it doesn't focus on black and brown people. Two, what they are experimenting with is unhoused people, and it's not a livable or prosperous wage. It is a welfare wage, and we know how that has worked. Those types of checks have not served us well, and we need to go far beyond um, welfare wages and go to prosperous wages because we don't want to just survive anymore and reparations goal should not be survival. It should be repairing the harm, which is this entire economy. So, keep in mind here, she was elected. 
by the good people of Denver. It's her re-election campaign. Right. She clearly is a hardcore socialist. She doesn't mind. She doesn't shy away from using the word redistribution. So if you didn't quite catch it there, folks, it's it's a recording of her speaking in a large group setting. Basically what she said is, hey, we need to tax the white-owned businesses at a higher rate and collect more from them and redistribute it to the black and brown-owned businesses. And then we need a universal basic income from the city, and it needs to be higher for the black and brown people. And uh, and then we've got to get away from these welfare wages and and require mandate that companies pay higher. But, of course, for the black and brown people... What am I missing here? Is this not discrimination, racist, and all its splendor here? I mean, it's just brazen about it. She doesn't hold back. This is the sort of attitude that's more pervasive, I believe, in this country than I think many of us uh, are aware of, and it, it is disturbing. This is a member of the city council of a major American city. It's time for a break here on Middays. We're coming right back. Stay with us. Awesome. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. Yay. On Super Talk Mississippi. James in Hattiesburg asks, do other countries extend their debt ceiling or do they actually have a real budget? Well, we have a real budget. Uh, now, it's, you know, typically it's passed through an omnibus spending bill, if you will, a continuing resolution. Those are the two approaches. And by the way, those only apply to that 30% of spending, which is discretionary. The mandatory aspects of spending, which are created by statute, they're not actually included in the budget because this, unless the statute's changed, there are no reforms implemented in those programs. Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, uh, various other government programs that provide financial assistance, and then, of course, our interest. That's 70% of spending. All that's by statute. We aren't alone, but we are pretty lonely when it comes to a country's ability to raise its own debt ceiling. That's right. America and Denmark are the only two major countries that have a debt ceiling that's set at a an absolute amount or a certain figure. Right. The vast majority of every other country that deals in the world's economy, they have it as a percentage of their GDP. That's right. So as a whole, they have to do better and perform more efficiently to raise their GDP in order to raise their debt ceiling. And in this country, and, and by the way, in all cases of those countries, the percentage is less than 100% of GDP. Right. Typically 50 to 60 
as I recall. It's usually where they, they set those limits. Now, in this country, we blew through that a long time ago. Total debt, which means debt held by the public and uh, debt, intergovernmental debt, the total figure of $31 trillion is nearly 50% more than our GDP, which sits at about $20 trillion. The debt held by the public, which is about $24 trillion, is roughly 120% of GDP. Point is, we're way past the thresholds that other countries have in place as a percentage of GDP to essentially manage, regulate their debt. Way past that. It's insane. And, it, and that is more of a cause of concern, that percentage, that relationship to GDP. It, it's kind of like looking at your household income relative to your expenses. And you know as part of, for example, applying for a, a mortgage, one of the things that's tested there by the lender is the, is the percent the mortgage is of your income. And they have some limits on that. And that's just because it's history has shown, experience has shown, what the average household can deal with to cover all their other expenses and service their mortgage debt. Same deal here. Well, we're... It's really hard to stay updated on your mortgage payments if it makes up 75% of your total income. Yeah, it doesn't work. And, and over the years, that figure has risen in the standards by lenders. It went from about 25, and now, depending on the state, because in some states, like California, that's going to be an outsized component of your spending because housing is just so dang high. I think up to 33 34% usually of your gross income is, is the acceptable range there. So that's, that's how it works uh, in this country relative to other countries. The debt ceiling with no restrictions is what, is what this person says he thinks the, the libs, as he calls them, are going to win on. It could be. Uh, restrictions would be uh, some form of reining in of spending as proposed by the House. That's really what the House seeks, what the Republicans seek. It's not just the House, but we shared earlier 43 Republicans in the Senate have signed on to the idea, to a letter, actually, that says we're not in support of raising the debt ceiling without there being some spending cuts to go along with that. That's what Joe Biden calls strings attached. I just want to ask them, and, I can, and I'm going to tell you what I think the answer would be, but i just like to ask him. so are you saying then, Mr. President, Democrats, you're perfectly fine with deficit spending, with out-of-control deficit spending? You're good with that. That's cool. You're okay with that. And what they would say is, well, no, we don't like that, but we don't want to cut it. Rather, we want to make those rich, greedy corporations and those wealthy people pay their fair share. Pay up now, buddy. That's what they want. And so they'd come back and say, rather than all these cuts you're proposing here, Republicans, we would like to propose, as we did in the budget that the president put forth, which, of course, has no chance, but by law, he's obligated to produce one and submit it, transmit it to the House and 
He did so. He's he wants four point seven trillion dollars of new taxes. Now, that's over a ten year period of time. It never works out that way. Ever. None of their numbers ever work they out. They don't. Way. They just don't ever work out. But it's I mean, just look at the jobs report. Right. The, the current jobs report says there's two hundred and something thousand jobs being added. And in the fine print, the last two months we had to revise the numbers because they were actually lower than reported. And there were 140,000 fewer jobs in the last two months. Almost every time. That happens. Now, some of that's because there's lagging information. I get that. But, again, there's that's how far apart the parties are. you got one party that says, we don't want to raise taxes, but we do think there's opportunities for cutting spending to reduce the deficit. The other party says, we're not cutting a dime of spending, buddy. The only chance you've got of trying to get control of that deficit, start chipping away at the debt, which won't happen until you eliminate the deficit, which means you balance the budget, is by raising taxes. That's the solution to everything is pay your fair share, shakedown. Except they never do the back-end math to figure out if it, if it would even work. The, it, it doesn't. Like Bernie Sanders' asinine plan to tax everything over a billion. Right. Never Guess works. Guess what? That pays the country's bills for about a week. Unbelievable. So that's why we're in the conundrum we are. Incredible. You may know in the state, you may be aware that there's an event held at um, two museums last week in Mississippi. You're familiar with this, aren't you, Rhino? At last Thursday, trying to tackle the issue of Confederate statues and other symbolism, monuments, and so forth that are still out and about in our state. And there was apparently a pretty involved discussion where they're trying to, I guess, make some recommendations on how to handle this. Very interesting. The the moderator of the panel was Hattiesburg author William Sturkey. Daphne Chamberlain, vice president for strategic initiatives and social justice at Tougaloo College, was on the panel. And William Sturkey, the moderator, said, quote, Monuments represent an emotional and politically charged topic. Yeah, I think that's probably true. One of the panelists, Chamberlain, said, uh, and that's Miss Daphne Chamberlain from Tougaloo College, said there is a lot of anxiety around truth-telling. It becomes a polarizing issue. Well, I think that's fair to say. There were some sympathizers of Confederate monuments there. One person said General Forrest helped a number, helped a member of his family. This is from one of the other panelists that was uh, that made this statement. But to others, it is a negation of who we are and who we strive to be. My worldview stands in opposition to Nathan Bedford Forrest. You know, it seems to me like you can be opposed to 
Obviously, slavery, which I don't know anybody today that would say, oh, yeah, I fully supported that. I, I haven't run any, into anybody that's ever said that, ever voiced that opinion, ever written that opinion. Maybe I'm missing something. I don't, maybe I don't get Not around America. Enough. Right, right, okay. Yeah. All over the Middle East. Correct, agree. Talking about in, in America, of course. But, but also, isn't it important that we at least preserve this history? So we understand it, learn about it, know about it. I think if you get your feelings hurt by a statue, you might need to work on your feelings. Just seems like there's a lot of other important things to talk about. In fact, yesterday, while we got the debt ceiling, Title 42, and Joe's problems with uh, his finances uh, and improprieties there, what does he do yesterday? Puts the clamp on the airlines. We'll talk about that when we come back on Middays. This program. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge. 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 News. Huge. 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 It looks something like a turnip green. And everybody calls it poke salad. And that's poke salad. There you go. That's the king getting all fired up there. <laughs> Jerry in Waynesboro says, how are we to trust the FDIC when the country can't pay its bills? Not sure I understand the relationship there, Jerry. Um, The country pays its bills, unfortunately, by borrowing money, much of which is printed is fabricated. And that, of course, drives inflation. And it is um, it should be a concern to everyone. I think what bothers me is that, again, nobody wants to tackle the sensitive issues. Can't touch this, can't touch that, can't touch this, can't touch that. Okay, this is the only thing we can touch, and it's, it's nothing. And again, it you're going to cut it. Think about this. You're going to cut, if you don't touch Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the other uh, various public assistance programs, debt interest, don't touch defense, you keep producing trillion-dollar deficits if you cut the rest of it by 50%. You could cut the entire Department of Defense and still produce an $800 billion deficit. No military. Still upside down. Conversely, you could spare the military and cut the entire rest of government. Again, not touching the mandatory spending programs. Same deal. Still running $800 billion deficit. $800 billion. That's assuming... We don't live longer. 
that's that's being conservative in the estimates of the growth of Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. So again, the only chance you have. So discretionary spending now, the total amount of discretionary spending is less than the deficit. Less than the deficit. You could cut out all of that so that the only thing remaining in government is Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, public assistance, and debt interest. Then you balance the budget. The point is, unless we do something about those programs, and no politician will say that. No politician will say it. Because it, it means you can't get elected, you can't get reelected. Donald Trump won't say it. In fact, he's told Republicans, don't you touch Social Security and Medicare. Okay, well, then you're never going to balance the budget. You could, of course, raise taxes and hope that produces more revenue, like the Democrats want to do. And something else you see a lot of, Rhino, that I, I feel like i got to point out is we like to refer to Ronald Reagan as Republicans, as conservatives, as kind of the gold standard. I think it's safe to say. He was excellent. I agree. It was awesome. Right person, right time. Unbelievable prosperity ensued. But the policies that he presided over, supported, signed, if he were questioned about those in today's political environment, he couldn't win. He raised Social Security payroll taxes. He raised them because they got worried. We're not going to have enough money to pay the benefits. He made the tough choices. Imagine today a candidate, let's say on the Republican side, sorry guys, we've got to raise your, your payroll taxes. You're going to get less take-home pay. You get beheaded. Ronald Reagan did it. Last time it happened, by the way. He also presided over the law which implemented taxation of Social Security benefits. Before that, they were not taxed. They are now. There's there's a formula. They're not fully taxed. And you know what those taxes do? Go back into the Social Security pot to pay benefits, to try to keep the program solvent. That's why he did it. He knew. we got to do something here. It's not sustainable. Those aren't very popular. He also believed in deficit spending. That's not popular. He presided over laws that that, um, really expanded immigration. That's not popular. And something else that I don't think is widely known is the program that provides free cell phones, so-called Obama phones. He was involved in that because that's when the 911 system was fairly newly created, and the idea was to ensure that every address in the country had a telephone to call 911. And there were two programs to do that. It was all about landlines, and that was expanded a bit. 
under Clinton, and then Obama converted it to cell phones because most people don't have landlines. But it's the same concept. It's to give everybody a way to contact 911. I'm just pointing out that those pop those sorts of programs probably wouldn't be popular as a Republican conservative candidate. But yet we do refer to him. We hold him up. It's kind of our our standard. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just pointing out that these are some things that maybe weren't widely known. Mainly the Social Security stuff. He got it. He understood. Yeah, this isn't sustainable on the current trajectory. We got to do something. But on the other hand, now let's be honest. So we raised Social Security taxes, but he fairly dramatically decreased income taxes. Can't you? So you can't lose sight of that. That's incredibly important. And at first it did produce deficits, but then it caught up, and we enjoyed unbelievable economic expansion. I personally believe that's what led to the the explosion of IT, which is really what drove the rest of our economic prosperity, because that's what gave way and and led to the creation of the commercial Internet which kind of got its legs in the mid-90s. But it was really on the heels of policies he implemented, mainly decreasing the egregious income tax. And, uh, of course, the Democrats freaked out over that. Tim McGee says, why are they trying so hard to divide this nation? He says, I'm talking about the Denver... Uh, city councilwoman. They don't see it that way. I know some people disagree with me on this, Ryan. Oh, that's fine. They really don't see it that way. They believe that that their positions, their philosophy is totally fair and righteous. Now, I argue it's back to this incumbency thing. Yeah, that's easy. Now that all these businesses are flourishing after untold amount of sacrifice and effort and risk-taking, they never consider that. Just woke up one day and money just fell out of the sky into your company. They have no clue. None. Guarantee you this lady's never made a payroll. And most of those in government haven't. They don't get that aspect of it. They don't get the risk-reward concept the winner-loser aspect. They just don't. Now that we got all this wealth, well, let's just recut the pie. They never talk about growing it. And, of course, we have to introduce, uh, at every turn, we have to introduce race into the equation as well. And I, I guess it makes them feel good about themselves. But from where I sit, it... It appears to me we give every possible accommodation to minorities in this country at every turn and at every level of government and in the private sector. We've shared so many large companies in this country have these policies in place where they give preferential treatment to minority-owned vendors. doesn't matter if their product and service is the best. The lowest cost represents the overall best value. They just have a carve-out for that. 
I would say, well, if you're a minority, you ought to think about going into business and going and knocking on the doors of those companies because they're going to buy from you simply because of your immutable physical characteristics. Nothing else but that. Cooling the gang, bumping us out of this segment. Man, I'm looking at these shots uh, near the border. Title 42 set to expire. Wow, this is going to be a nightmare. Coming right back. Stay with us. Final segment. Gerard Gibbert. Going beyond the headlines. Breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. Last night I dug your picture out from our old dresser drawer. I set it on the table and I talked to it till four. I read some more love letters right up till the... Oh, Randy Travis. Yeah, I've been sitting alone. Thanks for joining us on Middays. Jerry in Waynesboro. I don't know if I saw this uh, Monday. Jerry, you became a grandfather? I don't know if we mentioned that, Rhino, but my daughter had fostered two children for nine months, and last Tuesday they became ours. Lots of kid need homes. Congratulations, Jerry, and thank you to your daughter as well. That's fantastic. Really is. So he says, so everyone's deposit under 250 k is safe, but the country is $30 trillion in, de- in debt. How would they pay? Yes, yeah, good question, Jerry. The, the FDIC is a totally separate fund from the federal government's general fund, Treasury, if you will. It is primarily funded by insurance premiums paid by the member banks. So it's a little different deal. It's just administered by the, the federal government. Keith and Baden says, Gerard, haven't you haven't you heard the saying, United we stand, divided we fall, the Dems aren't stupid. Yeah, I know, and I know a lot of people, Keith, have that that view that their their goal is to to kibosh the country. I don't actually think that. I I, I have a different viewpoint on that. I I believe that they believe wholeheartedly that their philosophy, their policies, their approach is the best, is, uh, would, would produce the greatest prosperity, though they see that being equal in nature. They don't like the disparities. I don't really think their goal is, yeah, we're just going to kill the country. That's what we want to do. I don't believe that. I, I I totally believe that. I mean, the more radical old and left do always talk about tearing down the pillars that make up America. Well, I agree with that. Yeah, and there's no doubt that they we they, have to they want decolonize. To I, I agree. We have to deconstruct the status quo. But I don't. But I don't think that their goal is just this complete, total economic calamity, I, I, catastrophe, crash, total. Word, no, but that very destitute. well may be the end result if they I have agree. their way. I totally agree. I don't believe they believe that. I know. Yeah, that's that's the only point I'm making. So it's just I don't know that that matters. It's just terrible. It's misguided. It's wrong. And and we try to provide some. Uh, I guess some substantiation of that view 
Michael in Brookhaven says, how much has life expectancy increased over the past 50 years? Social Security age eligibility should increase accordingly. So the last time that was done was by Ronald Reagan in 1983, and that hiked the retirement age from 65 in 2000 to 67 at the end of 2022, just last year. That was enacted in 1983. So for what it's worth, since 2000, over the last 23 years, life expectancy in this country has actually declined. It's slipped. Not by a lot, 76.8 years to 76.4. But you know what, Rhino? That's not because, I don't believe it's because folks that get on up there in age are living shorter lives. I think it's because of the loss of life at the younger ages to a great extent. I think that's that's figuring into these statistics and, and it's producing a drag on the end result. Um, what do we know now that like 18 and under drug overdose, fentanyl, number one killer, right? So we're seeing a lot of people, young people, die as a result of that. I think a lot of that's pulling down. The uh, these figures, these at uh, the average age figure, but yeah, I agree, Michael, that the Social Security age does uh, probably need to be lifted again. Remember what happened in France a few weeks ago, sixty-two to sixty-four, and they about burned the country down. And the mere mention of increasing it just sends the left into a rage. And you hear Joe Biden in his campaign ad. His, his, his introductory announcement campaign ad for 2024, he says that. Republicans want to raise the Social Security age. I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember the exact statement and language, but he makes a big point out of that. And there are some who have proposed that. Because there ain't but really two ways to fix this. I say three, I guess. got to either... Increased revenues, which generally means more people got to work, which we're not producing more people, or, or the people that are working got to pay more in, which means increasing the taxes, got to pay less out, which means restructuring the benefits, maybe increasing the retirement age. That would be the most, uh, the most common approach, or a combination of the two. There really is no in-between. This also applies to PERS in the state of Mississippi, and... I can assure you folks, every candidate that comes in here during campaign season, we will ask them what their plan is for PERS, because it is a real problem, it's not going away, and it doesn't get discussed very much in uh, political campaigns, but it should be, because it's a huge problem, and it's the taxpayers on the hook. We're out of here today. We thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow. Until then, stay safe, and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.